Welcome to the Run Run Live 3.0 podcast, where we celebrate the transformational powers of endurance sports. Hello, my friends. This is your old pal, Chris, and you have inadvertently found yourself chatting with me at the Run Run Live 3.0 podcast. You should really be more careful. I haven't been traveling, and I have a lot of backed-up content, so I'm going to go weekly for a few weeks, at least this week, (laughs) and see if I can catch up. I got one of those... Two new sites that I was building. I got one up and running this week. It's my business blog. I did one for work. And it's a place I can blog about work topics and push them out to my professional social media presence. So if you're curious about that, it's called supplychaincrunch.com. And it looks like many of you got your notifications that you did or did not get into the Boston Marathon this year. We should probably have a meetup or something if anybody has any ideas. I usually shy away from planning too much around race weekend because, you know, I like to race and I don't want to burn myself out. It's been an easy no-travel week. I have been doing an easy run every other day, waiting for that hamstring pole that I picked up at the Erie Marathon to clear up. I ran 13 and a half-ish miles easy on the rail trail with Ryan last Saturday as my first major outing since that string of races. And it was nice and slow, but I was still limping a little bit towards the end. So Sunday afternoon, I had the Littleton 5K scheduled. This is part of that Neshoba Valley Grand Prix series that I'm running. And my plan was to just go out, jog it, and try really hard not to hurt myself because my legs still hurt a little bit. So one of the things I do this time of year is I put the air conditioners away for the season, right, which entails taking them out of the windows, these big metal boxes, and carrying them down into the basement for storage. And these things are pretty hard to carry, and they're pretty heavy. And so I was walking across the basement with juggling one of these things, and I tripped over some clutter. And, you know, you do that thing where you you, you try to catch yourself with your, your leg, and basically an off-balance weighted walking lunge. And I ended up dropping it (laughs) on top of another one and crashing two of my ACs, which isn't a bad thing necessarily because they were getting pretty old anyhow. But, of course, I comically stressed out that hamstring pull trying to catch myself. Now, this 5K that I was running last weekend is at 2.30 in the afternoon for some reason. And that kicked off a series of misadventures as well. So first I figured I'd ride Fujisan, my old race bike, down just as a warm-up and avoid the traffic, get a little extra exercise, and I hadn't ridden it for a while and the back tire was flat. So I'm thinking, no big deal, I'll just pump it up. I went to get my pump. My good floor pump had been riding around in the boot of my car all summer, and apparently that isn't good for pumps. Who knew? I guess the summer heat somehow popped the pump cylinder because it no longer worked. It blew out some of the seals somehow. And if anybody knows anything about that, please let me know if that can be fixed. I really like that floor pump. And in addition to this, there was a football game on at 1 o'clock that I wanted to watch. And the race was smack dab in the middle of that too. So I went looking for a way to listen to it on the radio during the race. Of course, I got my iPhone, so I tried to download an app and to get a stream of the local FM station that carries a game, but it just wouldn't work. It kept blowing up, probably because of the new, the recent uh, iOS upgrade. So now I'm fishing through all my old junk drawers and running bins for an old FM tuner, and I realized I had chucked them all because who listens to the radio anymore? Nobody. So I went over to your favorite giant evil mega discount store and bought a cheap pump, and a pair of jeans, and a juicer, more on that later. But they don't sell those FM receivers anymore. You remember five years ago? Or maybe it was more. You could get one of those cheap sports FM receivers for like 10 bucks or less. 
they don't make them anymore. They only make MP3 players now. So I got home. I pumped up Fujisan's tire. And I remembered that the Senza clip that I use for my hard workouts has an FM tuner in it. And sure enough, I could get a horrible, staticky, barely intelligible <laughs> broadcast of the game on it. But when I went to mount up on Fujisan, the back tire was flat again. And I didn't have time to change the tube, so I just drove down to the local park for the start of the 5K. Now, everyone else there is focused on the race and the race proceedings, and I'm like a Tourette's patient shouting out football scores and touchdowns. And I started as far back in the pack as I could go. <laughs> I went all the way to the back. You know, it's probably a couple hundred people. And I managed to hold back to eight-minute miles overall without hurting myself anymore. But, you know, I'm super annoying to run with when I'm at that zone two effort level and you're racing. I'm the Mr. Chatty encouraging guy and you're working hard. So I got that done. Since I was not traveling and in a couple of rest weeks, I took this opportunity to check off some things on my to-do list, like giving blood and getting a flu shot. It's probably in my head, but I feel like the flu shot always gives me weird debilitating symptoms for like a week. So I'd like to get that done when I'm in a rest week. I have also been watching a lot of movies this week. I've been on a bit of a Redbox Netflix binge. So far, I have seen World War Z, which was really scary. I had to watch it with Buddy. And I saw The Great Gatsby, which I liked, but I understand why people wouldn't like it. I watched the new Star Trek movie and realized like halfway through, it was a remake of The Wrath of Khan. <laughs> and I watched that Tom Cruise movie, Oblivion, and I liked it. I liked the science fiction part of it, but they did a really poor job with explaining a bunch of the plot elements, so I was a little confused. And on Netflix, I watched Fat, Sick, and Nearly Dead, the documentary by Joe Cross, Australian guy, where he drives across the U.S., doing a 60-day juice fast and talking to people, and I liked it. So, of course, I went out and bought the juicer. <laughs> I haven't used it yet, and I don't plan on fasting, although I do find the detoxing element of the fast intriguing. I think I may try working in, you know, we'll see how, how it tastes, but I might do one or two juices a day in place of my my oatmeal or my fruit. And since I've been home this week, I've been cooking a lot, too, right? I've been cooking dinner for my wife every night. And I try to do some nice, interesting, balanced meals. But whatever I cook, she complains about it. There's too much pepper on the grilled squash. You know, I can't cook. I admit it. My generation of men didn't learn how to cook. But I try. So one night, I'm stuck and I'm panicking. I'm like, what the hell am I going to make? i got 20 minutes and we don't have any food in the house. So I scrounge around. I found a bag of stale hamburger buns. I slapped some spaghetti sauce on them, some cheese, some cherry tomatoes, and a couple basil leaves from my garden, and toasted them up in the oven. And, of course, that's the meal she liked. She said, oh, this is great. <laughs> in today's show, I'm talking with our old training mentor, Jeff from PRS Fit, about plateau training and stringing together a bunch of endurance events. I'll talk a bit about disruption in Section 1, and I have a special rant in section two about color runs and i want you to pay attention because there's something different about this second piece and i want you to see if you can guess what it is one last story i was driving around my town doing errands over the weekend and i was on one of these suburban back roads that we have here in new england and the cars coming the other way were flashing their headlights at me and i'm thinking okay must be a speed trap up ahead or maybe an accident and up ahead in the road there was some sort of commotion with the cars coming towards me they're all stopped and i see there's something in the road in my lane and as i get closer i see that it is a snapping turtle crossing the road that has caused this big traffic kerfuffle and it's not even a big one maybe two three four pounds we get much bigger snapping turtles than that as I approach, I'm the only one on my side of the road, and the lady in the front car on the other side gets out and starts prodding the snapping turtle with her foot, and she's wearing a sandal, right? She obviously does not have much snapping turtle experience, 
And then she goes and bends over and starts trying to pick it up by the shell. And I start yelling at her, stop, don't do that. And I slab the car into park and I jump out, making sure the dog doesn't jump out the window and follow me. And I tell her, stop, you're going to lose a finger. Let me do it. And I grab it by the tail and toss it into the woods. And she says, like, oh, good thing you came along. And I swear people are about to start applauding. And I go back and get in my car and wipe the mud off my hands with a Starbucks napkin and laugh to myself, dumb-ass city people. On with the show. Are you hungry? Here's some food for thought. Governments and companies love the concept of stability. They like everything to be planned and predictable. They like people and the markets to fall in line and toe the line with the status quo. One of the reasons is that a stable system insulates power. Those who have scale and power get to keep it and can use the stability of the system itself to insulate from the loss of that power. Everyone hates change. Everyone hates disruption to stability, except those who don't want to stand in line. The problem with a stable system is when you don't have power. The rules of a stable system dictate that you have to ask permission from those who do have power. The cards are stacked against you. I would argue that those systems, governments, and companies that allow facilities for occasional disruption have a better chance of longevity. But how do you go about disrupting stable systems? How do you counter the mass and the inertia of the status quo? And many times it is by doing something that the market leaders don't want to do and finding a way to do it better. And doing it better as a concept can be across any spectrum of applications, product innovation, service innovation, delivery innovation, The one form of disruption I want you to think about today is I'm going to refer to as low-end disruption, the disruption that is caused by entering at the low end of a market and eating the big guys up from the bottom. You can use low-end disruption to flank the power structure. We in industry have seen the pattern repeatedly, globally, many times. Find any market where there is a low-margin business that the big players look down on, and you have the seeds, you have an opportunity to disrupt them. Look at what the Japanese manufacturers did to disrupt the auto, uh, motorcycle, and many other durable goods markets. When they first entered the U.S. market, it was with low-end, cheap economy models. And the U.S. car makers didn't want this business because it's low-margin. They didn't make enough money on it. They could sell one 22-foot-long Cadillac and make more profit than four or five little economy cars. The Japanese figured out how to make the cars at a lower cost and a higher quality and do it with a volume that gave them the same or better profit margins. They repeated this methodology in many categories of durable goods, starting with the low end and driving efficiency and quality until the market leader went under or were forced to retrench. They disrupted the market from the bottom. They did it by embracing business no one else wanted and figuring out how to do it and make money. Southwest used the same kind of model, taking the regional routes to less glamorous places because there was no margin in those routes for the big airlines. They created an operating model to do it profitably. And Southwest is consistently more profitable and growing faster than any of the big carriers. And many of the global outsourcing players started by taking the non-glamorous, low-margin work and figuring out how to deliver it, how to deliver it better. Why do you care? Because in your world, you will naturally want to do the glamorous, high-margin work. You will only want to work on the projects that have import and meaning. You will be looking for ways to maximize your personal profit margin. And that's not how you disrupt a market. That will only get you into line with all the other people who are smart and work hard. The way, or at least one way, to disrupt your personal trajectory 
is to find those things that no one else wants to do and do them so well that people are shocked. If you want to move to the front of the line, take on one of those projects or clients, whatever the low margin stinkers and clunkers are in your market, and embrace them without being asked. Figure out a way to change the rules, to do things better, and to work them to success. Don't make the mistake of avoiding the low end of your market. Figure out how to use that category in your life to move to the front of the line. Everyone else will be clamoring for the rock stars. They will be expected to do well. When you take on the stinker on purpose and succeed anyhow, people will take notice. And I'll, I'll tell you a story. More than once in my career, I have moved to a new company, and it was a sideways move in hopes of a better opportunity. And when you move into a new company, you're immediately at the end of the line and at the bottom of the pecking order, and they gave me the stuff that no one else wanted to work on. And my mode of operation was to throw myself into these unwanted situations with optimism and vigor. Did I subsequently get given the good projects to work on? No, I did not. What actually happened was I got taken out of line and promoted, and all the people working on the good projects work for me now. And that's my point. That's your takeaway. You're not looking to play the game better. You're looking to disrupt the game and create inflection points. Don't play by the rules. Change the world. I can do anything. I can be anything. I am not afraid. And now for today's featured interview. All right, so I think we're live now, Jeff. Okay. Pretty noisy where you are yeah, at the Starbucks. It's, it's, it's Boulder. It's a beautiful day in Boulder, so the Starbucks is active. Right. Everybody's coming back from there. Extreme kayaking trips and rock climbing and, and all school, the rest of that. School is back in session. CU had their first game last night with CSU, so it's a lot of activity in town. Yep. Yeah, when I was out in uh, Boise this week, that's a college town too, and all the hipsters were hanging around the coffee shops. Yeah. And they had their first game, and they were all crazy about that as well. So I wanted to touch base with you. I haven't talked to you since before Boston. Talk about... Some thoughts I've been having recently about the difference between traditional cycle-based training, periodicity-based training, not the difference, but the the similarities and differences between that and sort of plateau training. Because we're in a world now where we have these people that you and I both know who are running ultramarathons every month. And, you know, and then they're running marathons on the off weekends. Yeah. And it's just, it's a... They're just in that kind of shape. So when we were growing up, the way you trained for a marathon or any event, you know, you took six months and you trained for that event, specifically for that event, and you maybe went through a cycle of strength building, a cycle of speed building, a cycle of, you know, course-specific stuff, and then you ran the event. <laughs> but now it's more like they're in shape to do this every month, right? Yeah, I think, the, you know, the key phrase you said was, you know, they're in shape. And, you know, especially with the ultra guys, and I, I was talking to you earlier, you know, Ian Sharman, who just won Leadville, was on my show last week. And, you know, he talked about getting ready for the Grand Slam, the four 100s that are basically, you know, a month apart. And he said it was, you know, developing that high level of fitness, going into the first one, and then the recovery between the next, because the fitness isn't going to go away. That 100-miler fitness, and even a marathoner's fitness, isn't going to go away if they built into a very high level of being in great shape, the strength is there, the huge aerobic base is there, and that's what ultra guys do. You know, when you think about an ultra, they it's a lot of run, walking, power climbing. You know, they practice that in, as you know they're building towards an event, and they develop all those skills and because they're they're run walking, they're actually able to recover pretty quickly if they're in great shape. Now, the average marathoner doesn't practice the run walk skill, so they really have to develop that high level of fitness with strength and endurance, and then recover very smartly after the race before they they say, okay, well, I'm, if I'm going to make that four or five week turnaround, what do I have to do? 
you have to recover. That's what you have to do. You have to think about your recovery and how you feel after the race before you make that decision or commitment to go to the next one and how you're going to run it. Yeah, because in a traditional wave-based training, you peak on the event day. Yeah. You're not really training for multiple events. You're training for that one event. And so to turn it around in a couple of weeks, it's almost like you have to extend that training or, or rewrite that training to to keep that plateau. Yeah, you really – it's if you're looking at doing multiple events, the, the build into that first event is the key. You know, you have to, you know, build, 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 be very, very successful. And I, and I say this all the time, and you, you know my philosophy on it. You know, that aerobic, that aerobic base, that huge cardiovascular base has to be bigger than it is if you're just going out to run that, that one race. You know, you have to, to be zone two focused, you know, for long, long periods of time. So the slow twitch fibers are very, very strong. Your ability to carry um, your workload, um, to a longer point before fatigue sets in, has to be stronger than it ever is. And then again, strength work has to be there, and that you know that really focus on recovery. And I think that's what these guys who are doing who are turning races around very quickly. You know, they get out of a race and they know that they have to shut it down. You know, that's the important thing: shut it down and recover, so that they can turn it around and go again. Because if you don't, then you're looking at that recipe for injury. Right, but they're not just not running for three weeks between events. They're oh, actually no. running, but they're doing a lot of zone two work, and they're not doing the high-quality stuff. Right, right. Right. They'll come out of a race, and, you know, week number one, you know, a lot of them have taken to, okay, well, I'll get on a bike, and I'll spin, you know, Monday or Tuesday, Wednesday, you know, get my legs a little bit fresh, get some of the soreness out of my legs, and then they'll start, you know, some, some easy just base runs, some nice easy zone two runs to get ready to go. Um, and then, you know, four weeks later, they're kind of recovered and, and, and good to go to the next one. And the razor edge on this is trying not to get injured because this is really when those overuse injuries come into play. So when we're talking about building a big aerobic base here, we're really talking about years worth of work, not six weeks worth of work. Yeah, it's not the average marathoner or average ultra guy who, you know, can just go out and say, okay, I'm going to run my first hundred. I'm going to go out and run my first marathon and, you know, and then turn it around and do it again and then turn around and do it again. You know, I have people, you know, contact me and say, hey, I want to run 12 marathons in 12 months. And I say, okay, you know, what's your experience like? Well, I've run one marathon. You know, my, my answer is I'm not your guy because you're looking at getting hurt. You know, it's, you're right. It's a process of, of really conditioning your body over a long extended period of time to be able to do the quick turnaround marathons. You know, I think Kenyans are such a great example. You know, I, a couple of weeks ago, I was at my club and I was spinning with Frank Shorter and we were talking about the Kenyan training philosophy. And, you know, these kids, these young Kenyan kids, they train for years and years and years before they're allowed to race. You know, and then you see them come in and, and they come in and they, you know, they shatter a course record. And five weeks later, they turn around and shatter another course record and then they're done. But they spend a lot of years training. I mean, it's a lot of years before they even get into that first race. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a, a lot of a lot of um, just building, building the bricks of fitness up. Yeah. And yeah. all they do is, you know, it's all zone two and, and you know, they don't Kenyans. You know, aren't mechanized like we are, you know, by and large. But you know, everything is just aerobic base runs. You know, the long, slow distance runs, aerobic base zone two. You know, however you define it, it's about developing that long, strong aerobic base. So down the road, when you start to put stuff on top of it, you you reduce that chance of injury drastically, and you recover quicker. Right, and and we talked about that. That's part of it is when you come out of the race. So when I come out of a marathon, since I've run 35 marathons, I can tell the next day how badly I've beaten myself up. You know, I can kind of feel it, right? Oh, yeah, you know, when the more experience you have, the more you understand. And I'm sorry for this noise in the background. I don't think these people know what I'm talking. Um, the, the more experience you have, the more you understand your body and you, you start to get, I mean, you even know it after a long run. Geez, that long run took so much out of me. I need a recovery day tomorrow. And especially when you come out of a race, you know, I just did Ironman Lake Placid and my condition going into it was, was really, really good. And, you know, coming out of the race the next day, 
you know, I hurt. Don't get me wrong. I hurt, but I hurt in a way where I said, you know, I'm, I'm not that bad. And I ran the end of the week, you know, yeah. and, and I yeah. felt okay because I knew that I, I, I was okay to do that. So, you know, making that body assessment is very, very important and something you have to, most importantly, you have to be honest with yourself when you do it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and cause that's, uh, it really, it, it has to do with inflammation. You have to assess the inflammation because inflammation is what leads to injuries and chronic injuries. So a lot of it is nutrition and hydration. And so if you come out of that, that race just really spent and you've overtaxed your muscles, you'll feel that inflammation. And that's what you don't want to really, you don't want to pile on top of that inflammation until you beat it down. Exactly. Exactly. You know, there's just, there's a lot of great recovery tools out there now that help the body recover faster. It's, and, you know, I, I think people should do a little bit more research. You know, I have a set of recovery pumps. And I throw them on now after every workout and, and, you know, as soon as possible is over, it's home to the recovery pumps. And I think, you know, there's tools like that that also help you recover faster. What's a recovery pump? Uh, recovery pumps, are, uh, it's a company out of, well, they're out of California. They're, they're not manufacturing in California, but you put them on your legs and they have air pockets in them and you turn it on. And what happens is the pressure of the air um, fills up through the leg and then it drains out and then it fills up through the leg. And what it's doing is, it's basically like a flushing massage. It's, it's flushing, oh, the, lactic, okay. yeah, it's flushing yeah. the lactic yeah. acid out of the muscle and, yeah. uh, you know, getting the blood flow back into the muscles. Right. And if you can, after a, you know, just as an, as an aside, if you can, after a marathon or after a long workout, get a, get a easy massage oh, just yeah. to push that stuff out. It, it'll, it'll help your recovery by a couple of days. Oh yeah. And you know, the thing to be, you know, really smart about is, when you go into that, you know, massage therapist is, you know, let them know, I want a flushing massage. I don't want a deep tissue massage. Right. Deep tissue is, is the opposite of what you want. <laughs> exactly. That'll add to the inflammation. And there's some nutritional stuff, too. I see these folks, like yesterday, I was at this, okay, it was Idaho, right? Or two days ago. Mm-hmm. And they're eating this crap after oh. the marathon. Because it's Idaho. All they had laid out was like, you know, barbecue and bread and butter and chocolate milk and all this dairy and i was like really your body's already inflamed you're gonna dump all that stuff in there yeah it's you know it's recovery nutrition it it, not only important after the race it's recovery nutrition is so important during the training cycles what you get into your body immediately after a hard workout is how your body recovers for the next workout same thing after a race if you come out of a race you know, you want to make sure you're getting good, clean proteins back in your body, great hydration with high mineral levels, and and good, clean carbohydrates, um, so that you get the circulation process, you get the minerals restored, you allow that the muscle repair to start to happen. Um, you know, throwing a, a bunch of sugar and junk and fat into your system you know, doesn't allow any of that process to happen. Right, and my point is, it adds to the inflammation. As oh, absolutely. To helping it go away. Absolutely. Yeah, not. I mean, I'm not saying everybody should be, uh, you know, a vegan or or whatever. Eat what you want. Just be mindful of, be thoughtful of what you're putting in your body after a race. Yeah, make healthy so, choices. Yeah, so I'm doing a marathon a month now, and it's you know it's it's a calendar month, so they're not always a month apart. Sometimes they're a couple weeks apart. Sometimes they're six weeks apart. You know, and. Uh, it's interesting trying to figure out what to do between the marathons because you have to recover, but you also, have, you know, you have an opportunity to get like one short cycle in, right? Right. So if you think in terms of periodicity, you're tuning, you have an opportunity for a four week cycle. You can do a week of recovery, a week of taper and two weeks of training. So you know, something along those lines, right? So it's been interesting playing with, the training plan to uh, try to get better for each race. We have someone else that we train right now who's going through this exact mentality, and I think what's important is she has five weeks in. So, you know, this week, complete recovery, very, very easy. Let everything heal after the race, see what you feel like. Next week, kind of easy week after that, and then and then one big build week, and then, you know, right away into the, you know, the, the two-week taper to get ready for the race. You know, you're different than uh, – than, than a lot of marathoners. With 35 marathoners, one thing you have is the mindset. You know, you know that you can run 26.2 miles any day of the week. That's something that you can actually rely on. You don't have to rush your return. 
you know, for you, it's actually better to lengthen the recovery process because you're not 25 anymore. Lengthen the recovery process because mentally, you know that you can do the distance. So right. the thing is, is, how healthy can I do that distance? Right. So if you lengthen the recovery process, go easy for the first couple of weeks and then have a week where you build a little bit more into it, you challenge yourself a little bit and then shut it down again going into the race. You know, you're going to run really, really well just because you know you can and you've had enough you know, extra recovery time. Yeah, and, and I get the advantage of being able to let the race come to me most of the time. So I can go into the race with no expectations, see how it's sorting out, and then play it by ear because I've been in all those situations. Exactly, and that's and that's a huge factor. And when we talk about these guys who who do this a lot, the ultra guys and, and marathoners who turn around quickly and do it a lot, it's that's the one key element that I think you can overlook is is the mental approach to the race. The you know I know I can do it, and I know what's happening on race day. In the first five miles of my run, I know what the day is going to be. Right, you know, and then you and either back off or, or exactly. race, right? Exactly, shut it down or let it go. That's you know that for the experienced runner, ultra guy, marathoner, you know you know that in the first five miles, and if you're smart enough and you say that this isn't my day, and you shut it down so you don't get injured, you're good to go again. Right. So another big issue I'm having coming off of my my plantar fasciitis is. Uh, my right arch is different now. It's actually shorter than it used to be. Mm-hmm. So it's messed up my stride. You know, I'm running with sort of a sort of a limp, and it makes uh, makes my right quad get trouble high in the in the high miles. And it's you know it's it's something you can't really even discern, but you know it's there. How do you rewire in that good form? You know, how do you force that form back? It becomes a matter of the whole relaxation of the lower leg. You know, you really have to start taking care of your lower legs from your calves down, you know, right up to your toes. And when you're running, your whole focus has to be, you know, that landing with the relaxed lower leg. You know, that knee flex, you know, that foot under your center of mass, the ankle relaxed, everything in there relaxed. And um, what's happened is over the the years, because you had a very long period of time that that you suffered with this injury, you are now um, instinctively protecting that foot. And exactly. Exactly. That's causing the imbalance, and the, and the way to get through that is now you have to to just relax and start to let it happen and get your confidence back, so that your your body isn't instinctively going to that side to protect it, because that you know kinetic chain up through your quad is caused by the tension um, of protecting that foot when you're landing, and right. you know that's that's where the you know people get confused about shock absorption. Your body's natural shock absorption. Um, works way better when you're relaxed because it doesn't tense for impact. And I think right now you're probably going through this mental phase and and intuitively your body is tensing for that impact because it's been such a long injury period. So focusing on relaxing that lower leg, um, relaxing your foot at impact and just getting your natural gait back, um, it's going to take a little bit of time until it becomes subconscious again and instinctively your body just runs correctly. So, you know, there's two ways you can burn that in. One is by going to the track and doing some, some tempo, you know, and focused on the on a good stride. The other way is to do a lot of zone two where you're we are focused on the good stride. Which, you know, what what do you what do you recommend? You know, I you know, I always I think it's easier to go back to base because when you and the base being zone two, because when you go to track to the track, you know, as a competitive runner and a guy who's been doing this a long time, you know that when you go to the track, you change things up to run a little bit harder, which causes you to change your marathon gait a little bit. Right. And I think if you go back to that, you know, go back to basics, you know, start getting the thought out of your head. When I came back from my injury, it, it got to be, okay, stop focusing on my form. I know how to run. You know, I've run this way my whole life, so just run. And that's what it became for me, just, you know, get forward Get out of because I, you know, I was looking. Okay, where's my foot hitting? What's going on with this? Why is this bothering? And I just started to block that out and just started to relax and run again. And so I, you know, now I'm running like I used to run because I'm just running. Um, yeah. So I think that's the best way to do it, just to go back to you know doing a lot of base stuff and relaxing when you run. Mm, that's a good point. And the other thing I've discovered after taking so many months off, um, and you know this because because you knew, know my schedule. I was yeah. still working out every day. I was still doing the core. I was still doing the, the swims. I was still doing the bike. 
and I am just amazed at how much running fitness I lost. You know, I'm six to nine months back into it, and I'm just starting to sniff around the 22 to 24 miles worth of uh, of racing, right? I'm about four miles away from a full marathon worth of fitness. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's it's the whole specificity thing. You know, it's you have to run to keep running condition. And, you know, no matter what anyone says, when you have a long period of injury and, and you can get in the pool and, and keep your fitness level up, you can get on a bike and keep your fitness level up, but it won't be your running fitness. That after six, eight weeks starts to fall off a little bit, and so it just has you know have to get back to that specificity of training where you know you're getting the running fitness back, and it's taking you some time. But you know, you turned out a pretty good marathon the other day for an old guy. Yeah, I I have two and a half minutes away. I'm pretty happy about that. I wasn't yeah. even running this time last year, so I'll take it. Yeah, yeah, you had a great run and. and that Idaho, you know, you were saying earlier, the smoke and the, the altitude uh, didn't make it the easiest of races. No, I mean, I, I got no excuses. Uh, you know, I, I felt it after, you know, mile 20 or so. I felt the fitness and I couldn't hold the pace. So I, I just, that's, I got, I need that much more fitness, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's just a matter of just, you know, keep building the base and you know, keep building the base and keep building the base. And, you know, your, your fitness level will be packed by Boston. You'll be ready to go. Exactly. And that's what I'm thinking is as I race through these, treating them kind of as long runs, um, it's just going to make me that much more fit if I can stay healthy. Yeah, that's for you, I think, right now. It's, you know, is, is avoiding re-injuring that foot and I think and, and not getting other any other imbalance injuries that come from coming back from that long-term injury. You know, the quad being one, you know, am I because I'm overcompensating, is something on the opposite side going to start to affect me? So that's just getting more and more relaxed through building a bigger and bigger base and, and you know, getting the you back in your run, um, right. I, I think will be huge. Yeah, and I got to start, over the summer was tough because it was so hot, but uh, I, get, I needed to get some longer runs in, you know, some yeah. longer zone two runs in. And when I say longer, I mean, you know, over 20. Yeah. Because that's really where you start to see that last, you know, those last three, four miles of benefit. Yeah, exactly. So. You know, this, and again, it's back to the base. And I think you've done a really good job about that. You know, I, you know, I, you know, I see your tweets all the time, and I'm a couple of weeks, a couple of weeks, well, maybe a month or two ago, you said, geez, I'm really seeing the benefits of my zone two runs. And I said, yay, Chris Russell. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Working on my form. It's, and yeah. that's the thing. It's every day, right? You got to work on it every day. It never, it never yeah. gets to the point where you go, "Oh, I got this figured out. It's easy now," right? Yeah, you so, can't ever uh, take it for granted. You know, we, I was just having a, a, a talk with one of my other coaches today. Malia's in town, and you know, we were talking about, you know, it's it's twenty six point two. You can never take it for granted. You don't know what's going to happen on any given day. Um, so you know, you just have to get to the starting line physically as the best condition you can be in and mentally ready to go and hope it plays out to be your day. Yep, absolutely. You got to you train to get to the, the starting line with a, with an opportunity. That's right. It's, and then you it's all execution. So I'll tell you a story. I was running with the 325 pace group down the mountain and there weren't that many people, but there was a couple of couple of young ladies with me and the pacer, uh this guy and one of the young ladies was this lady named Alice, and we were talking to her, and she's about 30, and she said, well, it's my second marathon, and I'm going for a PR. You know, my, my first marathon was a 336, right? Um, you know, so Steve and I are kind of looking at each other, going, okay, 336 to 324 shouldn't be a problem. But, uh, you know, then we're looking at her stride, and she's breathing really heavy. She's overstriding. You know, she's swinging her arms back and forth, and like, and I was trying to coach her, you know, get your hips forward, shorten up your stride, <laughs> run lightly, pull your elbows back, downhill, and they pulled ahead. And don't you know it? I came up on mile 23, and I think she was on the ground. There was a there was a pile of people surrounding some runner who was wearing something that she looked like she was wearing. I think she pat. I think she hit the ground at mile 23. Ah. Oh. So it's oh, like you said, you get that experience. You can look at people in the early miles and go. This isn't going to end well for you. Yeah, it's not going to be your day. You did an Iron Man. What's next for you? Um, October 28th, I am going down to Oklahoma City to do um, a six-hour run. 
um, at a race called 24 the Hard Way. Uh, they have a 6 on Friday night um, and a 12 and 24 on Saturday. So I'm doing the 6-hour. And then uh, in February, I'm doing the 50-miler at Rocky Raccoon. Oh, yeah, that's a good race. Everybody likes that race. Oh, yeah, I was down there last year to, to pace a teammate, and uh, it was a great race. I loved it. We, we had a great time, so I'm going to go back and do the 50 this year. Yeah. All right. All right. Good talking to you. Stay in touch. Great talking to you, Chris. Thanks for having me on. All right. No worries. Bye. Hitch up your tights, because now we're going to talk tips and tricks for endurance sports. The Rainbow Connection I stopped in a local coffee establishment Saturday morning. As I was waiting for my java, I couldn't help noticing that the typical hubbub was amplified by the giddy giggles of a pack of young people. These weren't just any young people. These were young people who looked like they had just been disgorged from a vat of melted spumoni. Every inch of clothing and skin was rainbow-colored. I inquired about their Technicolor status, and they proudly replied that they had just done a color run. Their enthusiasm was infectious. My conversation with those human kaleidoscopes got me thinking. There seems to be no lack of gimmicks these days to lure runners in. Fad runs are elbowing their way into our corrals, our roadways, and our trails. There are color runs, where people who weren't alive in the 60s can visit that psychedelic era one kilometer at a time. There's neon. There are obstacle runs, mud, shaving cream, water hazards, and, oh, don't forget the zombies, lest they come after you. (laughs) It's tempting to write these events off, to relegate them to some category completely unrelated to running. I read an article recently whose author felt that today's fad runs belong in some other category than running, that they cater to children of a generation whose parents were so scared of hurting fragile egos that there were no losers. No one kept score on the Little League and soccer fields. Everyone got a trophy. Participation was king. And competition was believed to be too harsh. The author of that article may have had a point, but... They miss the fact that even though these events are wrapped in layers of fluffy, fancy frou-frou, the people participating in them are still putting one foot in front of another. Now, you will not catch this runner towing the line at a color run. I am first and foremost a purist who throws his medal into a pile and routinely sheds his chotskis between the finish line and parking lot. In general, I am happiest with minimal hoopla when it comes to my running. If the baseline measure is pureness of running philosophy, I am at the low-tech end. Most runners in my age cohort feel the same way. There's a new generation of runners, though, and an open road and a pair of running shoes aren't enough for them. They need color, foam, obstacles, allure to entice them to the start line. But just because these themed events aren't for me doesn't mean they don't have a place in our running community. Color runs are the equivalent of a really cute kitten, whereas a competitive 5K, 10K, or marathon is a lithe, lean, leaping leopard. I might even go so far as to say these events are a stuffed animal as opposed to a creature with a heartbeat, but they're all felines. That cute kitten has a place for the person who is intimidated to set foot on a race course. You know who I mean. The person who is scared they won't make it around the block, much less a 3.1-mile course. It has its place for a family group who has gotten used to living vicariously through other people's on-screen lives. If a person wants to spend $40 per person to run, it's none of my business. Bad runs are sweet, little, cutesy, kittens, become my business when a for-profit entity barges into town and is so blinded by dollar signs that they don't plan adequately. They may not have the right permits, meaning that an event is conducted on an active roadway without traffic control. There may not be adequate hydration. There may not be enough medical staff presence. Kittens can be destructive when given free reign. 
Over decades of traditional racing, meaning the no-frills kind where all you do is run as competitively as you can from start to finish, I have seen people get injured. Now that novelty and adventure have upped the ante, I keep hearing about adventures that go from daring to dangerous in the blink of an eye. And this concerns me. It concerns me as a passionate runner. It concerns me as a connoisseur of common sense. It concerns me as someone who wears a race director hat once a year. And speaking of that race director's hat, this may be a little selfish, but frankly, I see the fat events that are held nationwide as a threat to my humble traditional race. I have nurtured my annual race from infancy, dealt with the adolescent years, and we are at long last adult friends with one another, and I worry that my prospective attendees may chase the shiny unicorn and leave me holding the old-fashioned bib strings. Will traditional races endure long enough to outlive the latest batch of newcomers? I've been around in the running world long enough to have seen trends come and go. On Saturday morning, I found myself conceding the idea that the gateway for some of today's young runners may be more likely to be a rainbow-hued sidewalk than a cinder track. As I said already, getting pelted by colored cornstarch does not do anything for me. I'm too frugal to buy an all-white ensemble just to get it decorated by eager color throwers. I don't like having to maneuver through a sea of tutus to make forward progress. Give me an open trail and a happy dog any day. But we all come to this sport through different doors. My personal path to running started in high school, but it took me 30 years to learn how to love it. I imagine some of the color runners may be guys whose most recent runs were from the couch to the fridge at halftime. I have a hunch, though, that maybe one or two of those guys will find themselves lacing up quietly the next weekend. They will hesitantly step out into the sun and begin a slow, reluctant trip down the street and back. They will be seeking another gulp of fresh air and the firing of the muscular pistons that they discovered at the fad run. My fire in the belly gets stoked by the challenge of improving myself. I get excited by solitary hours through crunchy snow and bright rays of sunshine. I don't need industrial-sized speakers blaring rock music at me, and I certainly don't need to have substances thrown on me. Our first-timer guys fire in the belly just may start with some orange-colored cornstarch. In the case of fad runs, far be it from me to snub the experience that may bring someone into the fold. After all, they may start craving the running catnip themselves eventually, and when they do, I'll see them, and you, out there. The woods are lovely, dark, and deep, but I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep, and miles to go before I sleep. Did you figure out what was different or wrong with the Color Run post? I didn't write it. That's right, one of our virtual friends, Paula, longtime friend of the podcast. She and I cooked up an idea, and I dared her to write an article using my voice. And I guess it's like Run Run Live fan fiction. I think she did a great job with all the abuse of uh, vocabulary and Nabokovian sentence structure and the rule of three preponderance. Sounds just like me. <laughs> I just got back from a run with Buddy in the Woods, easy run, and I felt awful. <laughs> The hamstring's okay, but I just haven't, I had nothing. I blame the flu shot. We'll see what happens. I have the Harvard 10 miler on Saturday, which is another Neshoba Valley Grand Prix race. And after that, I'll only have the Air 5K and I'll have the whole series wrapped. But I had to tell the race director of the series that on the outside chance that I qualified for something in the series scoring, I was in eighth place last time I checked. I can't get any prizes or anything because I'm one of the race directors. So I made him put me in the standings with an asterisk. So I'm like a, a, a like, like one of those drug-using athletes. I have an asterisk next to my name in the standings. Now I have to get back into training, back into a training cycle for the next couple of marathons. I'm not racing Denver, but I can use it as a workout and build it into my plan 
uh, build a plan around it. So that's what I'm going to do next. And after that, my next opportunity to race will be Fort Myers in November. I signed up for the Tecumseh Trail Marathon in Bloomington, Indiana in early December, and that definitely won't be a race. I'll be lucky to get in under four hours. I don't have a January race yet, but I'm looking at potentially South Carolina. And February is more than likely New Orleans. March is still open. April is the Boston Marathon and the Groton Road Race. Hey, great talking to you. Please show your support for the podcast by going to my site, www.runrunlive.com, and buy a book. Maybe that new audio book I just put up. All right. Have a great week. Ciao. Thanks for listening, folks. I do appreciate your support. Run Run Live is a free service for you because I like writing and telling stories. I also love to meet folks, so feel free to reach out to me at Gmail or any of the other social networking sites. I'm CYKT Russell, and as you know, that's Chris Yellow King Tom Russell with two S's and two L's. My website is www.runrunlive.com. And most, if not all, of this content is posted out there. If you want the show notes to magically show up in your inbox when I publish a show in a beautiful HTML wrapper, you can subscribe to the mailing list at my site. It's a useful thing. If you're moved by something I say or interested and would like to see if what I wrote is the same thing, you can find it there, and it also has all the links to everything and everyone that I talk to and about. Other than that, my friends, thank you for the attention. Do epic stuff, and let me know if I can help. Ciao!